Welcome to Matt's and Felix on Air, coming to you from San Francisco, California. People who create, people who make a difference. Hope you had a great week. I had an insanely busy one. Um, it was a great one, though. I was house and pet sitting in Marin, which for those of you who are not local to the San Francisco Bay Area, is just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And at the same time, a, a good friend was here from Boston, so I spent quite a bit of time with him in the city and in Marin. And all the while, I was scrambling to prepare for my first ever trip to Burning Man. And again, for those of you who don't already know, Burning Man is a, a week-long annual event in what is called Black Rock City, which is actually a temporary city erected in the Nevada desert, in the, um, the Black Rock Desert, which is about 100 miles north-northeast of Reno. And the Burning Man site describes it as, quote, a temporary metropolis dedicated to community, art, self-expression, and self-reliance. Burning Man takes its name from the culmination of the festival, which is when they burn an effigy of a, uh, a wooden man. And that takes place on the Saturday of the festival. It was first held in 1986 here in San Francisco on the beach. There were about 35 people. And uh, it was just a small function organized by Larry Harvey and Jerry James, who built the first man. And it's been held annually ever since. Like I said, that first year they had 35 people. Last year they had 70,000 people. So obviously the event has grown exponentially over the years. And uh, you know, a few people have asked me, um, what do you do? But you do a lot of different things. So obviously it's a celebration of art. It's a celebration of music. You can participate in, in some of the, uh, the installations that are, that are out on what's called the playa, which is basically the desert where the 60,000 people are congregated having the event. There are talks, there's a lot of people watching, people get dressed up. Um, there's just a lot going on, and I had uh, I'd wanted to go for years, and it just kind of never happened. Either I wasn't here, or I didn't just didn't plan ahead enough, or um, whatever for whatever reason it just never happened. But I also wondered, you know, an event that goes from 35 people to 70,000 people, you know, can it still have its its spirit? Is it still something worth doing, or has it just gotten too big for itself? Well. I've had a lot of friends over the past couple of years, two or three years, who have, um, who have said, you know, they've gone for the first time and they've come back and just raved about it. And so I decided that this year I would go for the first time. So uh, the event actually started today, but I obviously wanted to do today's show and then I'm going to head down there tomorrow. So really looking forward to that. I am also really looking forward to today's show, but first I want to mention my upcoming shows. So there will be no show next week, but the following week is uh, Nahid Fatahi will be on. And she's a humanitarian, a storyteller, a poet, a yogi, and a soon-to-be psychologist. But she's also an Afghani refugee who has been in the country for uh, quite some time. And she has a lot of really interesting, really inspiring, incredible stories that she's going to be on the show to talk about. So I'm really looking forward to that. The week after that, travel writers Kimberly Lovato and Jill Robinson will be on the show. And they're going to talk about their new book, 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. Kimberly has been on the show before, and she was actually on my first show ever with uh, travel writing legend Don George. And we had a great time. Don, of course, has been on twice now. So I know that I haven't met Jill, but uh, judging from, from you know, past experience with Kimberly and, um, and just I know that this is actually an updated version of a book that already exists, but uh, I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation. And learn, learn even more about what to do in San Francisco before we die, which hopefully is considerably far off. Uh, Zoe Elton from the Mill, Mill Valley Film Festival will be making a return visit as well. She's going to talk about this year's festival, as will Jane Ganahl, 
who's going to tell us all about this year's San Francisco Litquake. And also in October, I'll be talking with Amanda Jones, who is co-founder of Kikoko Cannabis Infused Teas. And I'm really looking forward to that as well, because I've wanted to have someone on for quite some time to talk about basically, you know, cannabis post uh, legalization, post recreational legalization. And then the whole fact that they're doing a, a tea, um, you know, a line of teas based on that is really interesting to me as well. So I think that'll be, again, very interesting to talk with with Amanda. Lastly, also in October, Michelle Alcedo is going to be on the show, and she's going to talk about an organization that works on behalf of LGBT seniors. So lots of really interesting guests coming up. Those are just a few of them. Uh, so tune in in the weeks to come, not next week, but the weeks after that to come. The time, however, is now, so let's jump into today's show. Borderlands Books is a new and used bookstore that uh, specializes in science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and horror. It's located for the time being in San Francisco's Mission District. It is one of the largest stores in their specialty in the world with nearly 30,000 titles in stock. The store has been mentioned in AAA's Travel Magazine Via. It's been mentioned in Gourmet Magazine, The Washington Post, and a couple times feature articles about the store were done in The New Yorker. Last April, Borderlands made Atlas Obscura's list of 62 of the world's best independent bookstores. Alan Bates, am I saying that right? I, I didn't ask you before we started today. It's Beats. Beats. Like two of the vegetable. Okay, like, like two of the vegetable. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Alan Beats is founder. Damn it, I, I should have asked you beforehand. Anyway, <laughs> it's uh, that's not the first time I've forgotten to ask somebody. Alan Beats is founder and owner of Borderland Books. He was born and raised in the Bay Area, and after spending a decade working an eclectic job or collection of jobs, including firearms instructor, private investigator, bodyguard, motorcycle shop manager, nightclub manager, and DJ, he opened Borderland Books in 1997. Alan frequently and freely says that was probably the best and smartest thing he's ever done. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. So you're here to talk about books, but I have to ask you about your bio. I mean, because there, okay. there were some really interesting things in there. So private <laughs> investigator. Tell me a little bit about that. That's, that seems like a really interesting one. Um, actually, private investigations work is predominantly dreadfully boring. Oh, really? Um, and uh, I, was working for a, uh, I was working for a PI uh, and former cop in San Jose. And um, I primarily did a lot of vehicle surveillance, following people around in a car. Really? And I did, however, <laughs> master the capacity of driving a car operating camera and a radio all at the same time, which I don't recommend. Well, it sounds pretty similar to what I'm doing right now. Kind of. Actually. Drive with your knees. Without driving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank God I'm not behind the wheel right now, at least not, not a literal wheel like that. But how did you get into that, if I may ask? Um, I, I, I sort of drifted into it. I'm, I actually majored in law enforcement in college. Ah, okay. And okay. Um, that was something that had, had always, that and sort of the things associated with it had always been an interest of mine. I'd been involved in martial arts from quite an early age. I was a quite an avid um, uh, shooter and firearms enthusiast in my in my teens, and uh, so that all sort of kind of converged together in yeah. in that sort of direction. And um, uh, I didn't think that uh, a sworn law, sworn law enforcement position, like being a police officer, really suited my personality very well. Yeah, and so I did a lot of jobs kind of around the periphery of that field. Okay. And so you just mentioned firearms because I think you're also a firearms instructor. We say in the I've worked, yeah. yeah, I've worked as a, as a firearms instructor. Yeah. And then um, what about bodyguard? You were also a bodyguard, I think. I also worked as a bodyguard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I feel very safe 
here today. <laughs> I feel very safe. I don't know if he's packing heat. Do we use that expression? One can. Yeah, I don't know if he's packing heat, but uh, but I feel really safe. Okay. Why was uh, opening Borderland Books possibly the best and smartest thing you've ever done? Because really it has led to the best thing that I've done in my life. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that both for me personally in terms of the friends that I've made, the people that I've met, um, I met my partner of now 19 years. Oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. Through the bookstore. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so just a lot of really great stuff that's happened to me personally have been a result of opening the store. And I think that also the store has been a really positive, has had a really positive impact on both our customers and the sort of literary community in San Francisco and also the people who's, who've worked with me. I just feel like it's been kind of universally a good thing. All right. And uh, so it's a pretty great thing to do. Yeah. And we're going to talk some more about some of the specific ways in which you've been of Tremendous benefit to the to the literary community and the community in general, uh, but but why a bookstore of all the things you've done all these other things none of which that I just mentioned really were specific to literature or books or science fiction, so how do we go from uh, being a private investigator studying law or law enforcement to uh, to doing a bookstore? It was sort of an interesting progression. Um, to say most of my interactions with people when I was in the security field were um, not uh, not collaborative and not real pleasant. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. A lot of the interactions I had with people were very adversarial. Then I, I stopped working in that field and I started working as a nightclub promoter. And I realized that I actually really liked people and I really <laughs> enjoyed like interacting with people and, and talking with people and, and stuff like that. And then when I went on to manage a motorcycle shop, I realized that I also enjoyed um, running a business and and sort of dealing with the public in that way, and especially doing so in a, in a positive way. I mean, you know, if, if, if your car's broken down or your motorcycle's broken down and you bring it to the shop, that can be a really positive interaction that as someone who's running the shop, you have with some, you know, you, you, fix their motorcycle and, right, you know, hopefully right. it costs them less money than expected. And, and so it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, I looked back while I was feeling some dissatisfaction with that job. I looked back at a lot of my previous employments and I realized that I had had the same sort of dissatisfactions at almost every job I'd ever done. And given that the only common denominator among those jobs was that I was the person doing them, I sort of had a moment of clarity and realized that maybe I shouldn't be working for other people um, and that I should start my own business. Right. And so then it was a matter of thinking about, well, what would I want to do? And uh, so I decided I kind of wanted to sell stuff and I thought, well, what's, what stuff do I like the best? Yeah. And where is it going to be positive where it's not going to be convincing people to buy things that they don't necessarily need or want, but sure. instead being in a position of helping people find things that they might not know they desired because they don't know that they existed. And that's a lot of what book selling is about. Right. Hand selling, I think, is that the Hand selling is, 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 is one part of the of terms. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that kind of led me to, to opening a bookshop. Okay, and why, why these specific genres versus a general bookstore? Why did you decide to focus on mystery, horror, sci-fi, what's the fantasy? Fantasy. Is that the fourth yep. one? Yeah. 
at the time, so I, I actually started my business the same year that Amazon started their business. Oh. At the time when I opened, one of the big pressures on bookstores were the, uh, the national change, specifically Borders and Barnes and & Noble. And it was very, very, very difficult to compete with those stores as a general interest bookseller. Uh, because of the the size of spaces that they would rent and the amount of inventory they had. However, so so basically I looked at that. I was like, yeah, if I try to be a general interest bookseller, I'm not sure how much of a chance I've got, mm-hmm. especially because I only could afford a relatively small location. So I decided to specialize in the stuff that I liked the best and I knew the most about which has, those have been my favorite types of, of fiction and reading material my entire life. So that was what determined um, the specialty. Yep. So that was in 1997 mm-hmm. that you opened. And uh, you started with just used books? Started off with just used books. And in fact, half the inventory were my books. They were your books that you actually owned? Yes. That you were reselling? Yeah. Oh, that's I cool. basically took uh, all the books that I owned and put them on the shelves. That's interesting. So... Just because that was that was practical, or I didn't have you didn't money. have the money to <laughs> to get additional stock, yeah, so you I just had, thought I've got this collection. Let me just uh, yeah. get it out there. I had very very little money to start off. Yeah, when I when I opened, so half of them were my books, and half of them were excess inventory that I bought. In other words, by excess inventory, you know, as a as a used bookseller, if you have five copies of the same book, you probably don't need all five of them. Sure. And so I bought a lot of um, uh, excess inventory from uh, two friends of mine who ran a bookstore in Palo Alto. Okay. I don't see many bookstores today that are just used books. Is that probably not such a viable model these days, or are they still out there? Because I know Aardvark, for example, locally, mm-hmm. is almost all used books. Yep. Is that something you would be able to do today? I think so. Yeah. Um, the, pro- the problem, the thing about used books is that the 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 margin in terms of the difference in between what you pay for it versus what you sell it for is is typically very good for used books. Oh, it's really much, it's good. much better than than new books. Ah, interesting. Um, so you have a sort of advantage there in terms of selling used books. The catch is that since the price is comparatively low, y- you have you still have to sell an awful lot of books even with that better profit margin. Right. Um, so I think that someplace like San Francisco, it's difficult to run an exclusively used bookstore. There are, there are still some stores in town that, are, ones, that yeah. are pretty much all used. But as you get outside of San Francisco in areas where, um, where commercial rents aren't as high, I th- you find more and more, more viable. used bookstores. Yeah, I just hadn't thought about it. I guess now that you say it, I guess it sort of makes sense that the margin would be larger. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can set the price, whereas you can't set the price for the, for the, the, the new books. Yep. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's why you're here. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about the history because you started in Hayes Valley. We did. And then you moved to the mission and you said that you had always wanted, initially you had wanted to be in, in the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jumping around here a little bit though, in, in February of 99, so just two years after you started, and then how, how soon was it that you moved to the mission? Um, we moved in uh, 2001. 2001. Okay, so before that, you hired your first employee mm-hmm. who is still working for you almost 20 years later, or at least he was as of your last website update. I don't know if that's... He, he actually, <laughs> he's, his name's Jeremy Lassen, yeah. and he was working with me at the World Science Fiction Convention last weekend. So All right. Works. Okay, so he's still around. Yep. How do you keep someone around for almost 20 years? <laughs> to, to, I mean, because that be, seems to, like a tribute. To be, to be honest... Yeah. Um, 
one books book selling in in general the business business of words whether you're a writer a bookseller a publisher an editor people do it because they love it right none of us do this to get rich right if we get to make a living that's winning amen right amen so when you when you develop a, when people work in in bookstores typically they do so because they love books so if you're doing it because you love books why would you stop yeah so that's part of it. Sure. The other, the other part of it is that um, I, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm actually a pretty good person to work for. Yeah. Um, the pay's lousy. Yeah. But you know, beyond that, I, I tend to be a pretty good person to work for, and I, retaining employees is not a problem that we have. Well, I think you're, um, you're one of the exceptions then, <laughs> because it seems like all of the stores that I go into, the cafes and things, it's just sort of a revolving door. So I really, that must be a testimony. To the love that the that like you said that your employees have just for 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 the written word and likewise for the relationship that you um, that you have with them. A couple more questions about the store itself before we move on. So why the name? I'm always curious about the names of these places, right? Well, <clears throat> I'm really bad at naming things. Okay, and so I spent a, a lot up coming up with a lot of really awful names uh -huh. for a bookstore. Do you remember any of them? <laughs> I know it's been 20 years, so if you don't, you're, you know, putting you on the, the spot. The, the, uh, okay, of the really awful ones that I remember, probably the worst one was Literary Lion, L-Y-I-N, apostrophe. And I thought that was clever for some reason. <laughs> and honestly, it escapes me why I thought that was a good idea. I'm struggling with that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm struggling with so, that um, So I, I reached a point where I was just so frustrated trying to figure out a name. And I came from... Borderlands was one of the names on the list, and I started thinking about it, and I ended up settling on it because it was a it was a nicely sort of multi-valued kind of thing. Um, so there's three primary reasons that um, that I chose that name. The first one is one of the earliest American writers of weird and macabre fiction was a man named William Hope Hodgson. And one of his best-known books is *The House on the Borderland*. Okay, um, novellas more than more than a book. So there's there's that sort of you know classic example because that that tradition of weird tales and weird fiction, uh, people like him and Arthur Machen and H.P. Lovecraft, that really is the foundation that grew and bifurcated into science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and horror. All sorts All of it. had that that original root. I mean, okay. you know, so there's that. There was a series of um, uh, fantasy novels that I quite enjoyed um, uh, in the 80s that were um, uh, called the uh, uh, Border Town books, and the idea of Borderlands figured prominently in those. And then the last reason is that uh, all of the genres that we carry have always kind of existed on the borderlands of respectability and the borderlands mm -hmm. of, of literature. That, you know, when it's really good, you know, 1984 becomes a classic of literature, and when it doesn't, but but very few of them actually make that mark and get, to my mind, the literary recognition that they deserve. Yep, yep. You've gotten a couple awards. Now, it's been a while, but these are interesting enough that I had to bring them up. So, and you've probably gotten several awards, but two awards in particular that, it, that, that I have to mention, even though it's been a while. In 1999... Borderlands earned the honor of Best Creepy Movie Night in Hayes Valley. So, first of all, did you used to show movies? Yes, we did. Okay. We had, Do you uh, still? No, we don't. Okay. Um, okay. Best we might, Creepy Movie We nights. might go back to it. Okay. Um, but we, we stopped for a while. Um, and why they chose Creepy, I'm not sure. But every 
Thursday night, if I remember correctly. Um, we used to we had a big TV and sit around and watch a movie. And, you know, if I want to sit down and watch a movie, great. Yeah. If not, I got to sit and watch a movie, which entertained the hell out of me. All right, there you um, go. And why they decided creepy? You know, yeah, there were horror films, but there were also lots of science fiction and stuff like that. So they didn't go to enough of the events. That was kind of yeah. It was kind of it was that was kind of a weird honor. Okay, well, the next one was also pretty weird. Uh, and I'm curious if it still applies. Which I'm, is, and I'm, I'm wondering which one because there's two possibilities. So well, we'll see th- which there's one this a is. third one I'm going to mention later in the uh, show okay. because it's yeah. more specific, more appropriate to a particular thing we're going to talk about. So the one I'm going to mention now, which we'll see if it's the one you're thinking of, the best place to meet a kinky space cadet in the San Fr- and that was from the San Francisco Bay Guardian 2000. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, how and why? I Secondly, have, is that still the case? I have no idea why. Okay. I have no idea how. I'm not sure that ever was the case. You haven't so seen any I kinky space really space cadets uh, that you knew of. I have seen plenty of kinky space cadets. I used to work in nightclubs in San Francisco. No, but I mean in the bookstore. But not necessarily the right. bookstore. Perusing the um, shelves. Not not so much so. I have no idea. what. Now, back in those days, the Guardian and both the Bay Guardian and the SF Weekly did their sort of best of San Francisco awards. They were cool. And yeah. they picked some random random things to give people awards you do wonder what for. they were sitting around like the group of editors or whoever came and reporters who yeah. came up with some of those categories that pr- that particular one about a kinky space cadet caused a number of my friends to sit me down and say remember there's no such thing as bad publicity that's right and i was like i'm not sure that you're right but no i think that's <laughs> i mean that had i mean i'm sure you were already on the map obviously but that only got you that much further on the map I would I, guess so. I think that's great publicity. And now I'm reviving it. <laughs> How many years later? 20 years? Not, no. Close, well, I close said 2000, to Yeah, 18 yeah, years later, 18 I'm, years I'm later. reviving it. Yeah. So hopefully that publicity lives on. All right. A lot has changed since you started, obviously. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are some obvious changes, but rather than kind of throwing some of those out there, I'm just curious, from your perspective in particular as a bookseller, um, there's the publishing industry, that, but, but then specifically also, and maybe it's just so intertwined, there's not really a distinction to make, but how has book selling changed some of the highlights and lowlights, I guess, in, in the past 20 years? Obviously, I, th- I think it's relatively obvious that the, the major way that book selling has changed is the, the move towards e-commerce as, as a as a channel for book selling yep. both in terms of Amazon and you know buying books online there's some there's some excellent um, non Amazon affiliated used book markets also that exist online and that gives an accessibility to to uh, rare and out of print books that never existed prior to that point mm-hmm. um, then there's also the aspect of um, you know selling ebooks and essentially being able to deliver people a deliver to people a book instantaneously and for people to you know basically on a whim hear about a book without getting off the bus have the book and start reading it in a matter of minutes or seconds right which is still insane yeah it is a weird weird thought yeah um if i still traveled the way that i used to when i was in the security field it would be the best thing in the universe yeah because one of the problems that i had was finding enough stuff to read right so um, that's I think that's been the biggest change, and the things that have come from that 
um, are the, the the most profound change in the in the publishing and and book selling world. Yep. Um, and the you know the shift in dominance from as I said when I first opened, it was the two big chain stores, Borders, Barnes and Noble. Well, Borders is gone now, um, and in going did a tremendous amount of damage to the publishing industry in the United States because of the financial impact of Borders closing. Um, and Barnes and Noble, I pay attention to what Barnes and Noble is doing and. It doesn't look to me like they have a plan, yeah. and if they if and if they don't come up with some sort of plan, they are liable to go the way of of borders. Right. So that's that's an enormous change, and um, and of course the 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 significance of Amazon in the in the book selling market. So let's talk about the significance of Amazon in the book selling market. So something you said in a um, in a 2016 MSNBC interview that you did for reasons we're going to talk about uh, shortly, but specific to Amazon was that uh, they asked you on MSNBC, they asked you about you know the impact that Amazon had on closing so many indie bookstores and bookstores in general. I guess Amazon mm -hmm. probably had something to do with Borders, Demise, and Definitely. as well, and Barnes & Noble's um, continuing to struggle. But, but you said at the time, they asked you about you know, do we need to worry about more indie bookstores going by the wayside because of Amazon? And you commented at the time something I thought was interesting, which was that... Uh, we had already seen by that time, so we're talking again, what did I say, 2016, you're saying that the, you said that the indie bookstores that have already been crushed basically are just, you know, removed from the map because of Amazon and, and Borders, I think probably before that, obviously, mm -hmm. um, that that had already sort of happened and that things had kind of stabilized. So, um, so is it safe to assume that that's still sort of the case that, that the indie bookstore world has kind of dealt with that and now we're just kind of moving forward we can kind of breathe somewhat of a sigh of relief in the in that respect yes i think i think so um there are i haven't seen figures that i feel a hundred percent confident about in terms of <clears throat> pardon me there being more bookstores opening um certainly the membership of the American Booksellers Association has increased and the 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 ABA is the the national level booksellers organization so sort of like a trade association right um their the the numbers of of members has has been going up so that that is a pretty positive sign that's not exactly the same thing as there being more bookstores now than there were 5 years ago um but that is a pretty promising sign the ABA says, because I just I got a figure uh, from them that there has been a rise, and I know you said you weren't necessarily confident in the figures you've heard, so you've mm -hmm. probably heard this figure, and maybe this is one that you were referring to that you're not necessarily completely comfortable with, but they said, uh, I'm trying to find the date here. So this was a 2017 article. The ABA noted that there has been a 35% increase in the number of independent bookstore locations since 2009. Does that sound feasible to the extent that you would... Not necessarily. <laughs> the ABA has been known to misrepresent facts. Okay. They have, in fact, misrepresented facts in print about things that I have said. Oh, so I am not a member of the ABA. <laughs> ah, okay. So, all right, the if plot the thickens. ABA, I wouldn't necessarily. No, I think I'd probably go this far. If the ABA said it was raining, I would look outside to find out. Oh, so <laughs> then saying, and okay. the thing is, that th a thirty-five percent increase in independent bookstores in, in between what two thousand and nine and two thousand and eight, seventeen, two thousand seventeen. Yep. So in an eight-year span, that seems 
like a very, very, very high number. Yeah. I was really surprised and encouraged. Also, I don't know is that is is that specifically the number of stores, the number of locations, the square footage of stores, or the income from the stores? Yeah. Do you think that it is nonetheless representative of a positive trend that there are more indie, whether we know that whether it's whatever the magnitude, whatever the right. actual statistic is, do we know that there are more indie bookstores opening up? Is I that, think that, I think yeah. that there there are more independent bookstores opening than are closing. Okay. Well, that's encouraging. And least. that was a huge change compared to when I started where more were closing than were opening. The other thing that seems very positive is it's actually possible to sell a bookstore now, whereas, say, 15 years ago, uh, a bookstore sold for the value of its inventory. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much what a store sold for. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no value to the actual business reputation or the customer base or anything like that stores sold for what the inventory cost at wholesale. Interesting. So stores now sell for more than that. And so that seems to me to be a very positive sign as well about the sort of health of independent bookstores. Right. Interesting. Um, But before we talk more about Indies, let's, I want to, I have a couple more questions about Amazon relative to Indies. And um, so my first question is just sort of a really broad one. Is Amazon so big that you can just get, and I mean, I'm I'm on Amazon, so I'm familiar with Amazon, Mm -hmm. but but again, more from a perspective of a bookseller, is Amazon so big that they just have everything? Or are there niches that, for example, bookstores such as your own that focus in specific areas are able to fill that Amazon can't quite fill? Now, you did mention just a second ago um, certain used, there are other sites that, that specialize in used books that perhaps aren't offered on Amazon. So that maybe, I guess, is one example. But in general, do you would you ever carry new books, for example, that wouldn't be on Amazon? Or has Amazon just sort of become... You just have to be there at this point because it's so massive. Well, I, I think it would be worthwhile to clarify what something being on Amazon means. Sure. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be kind of the you know cranky bookseller bashing Amazon. I think that that's unnecessary and tiresome. And I think Amazon does a lot of things that are very positive. That's my next question. When something is on Amazon. That means that Amazon is providing it for sale. It does not mean that Amazon necessarily has it in a warehouse that belongs to Amazon. Amazon will list things for sale before they're even released, which is something that is somewhat irritating to booksellers is that someone says, you know, hey, I'd like to buy a copy of Blottable. I say, well, that's not released for a month. And they say, well, but Amazon has it for sale. And in fact, Amazon does not have it for sale. They are soliciting purchases of it they will tell a purchaser that the book is back ordered and then they will ship the book when the book actually is published. Is this wasn't there there was something in Seattle or Portland with JK Rowling where do you know what I'm talking about there was something about pre-orders and exactly it was for is, one was of it the along Harry, these it lines well right. it it was a slightly different thing it was for one of the Harry Potter books that were the term in book selling is embargoed where you cannot you literally sign an affidavit saying you will not offer this book for sale until a specific time, mm-hmm. um, the, the lay down date, as we call it. Uh, and what Amazon was doing is Amazon was accepting orders and was shipping the books the day before the embargo date. Mm. And Amazon's argument was, well, they're not getting the book before the embargo date. Right. And the argument that uh, Rowling and a number of 
uh, independent bookseller said, yes, but you've sold it before the embargo date and we're not allowed to do that, so how come you can do that? Right, because otherwise they could do the same thing. They could send it beforehand. It's not, I mean, they could do the exact same thing, right? Right. Yeah. So, so that was, that, that kind of revolved around that. But, but anyway, so getting, getting back to the question of yeah. something being on, on Amazon. Yeah. So Amazon may offer a book for sale um, but they don't actually have a copy. They're doing it on the basis of the publisher saying, you know, this book is available. Um, and so when you place the order, Amazon goes to the publisher, says, hey, either send us a copy of the book, the publisher sends it to Amazon, Amazon sends it to you, or they will drop ship and they'll go to the publisher and they say, send a copy of this book to this customer. Okay. So Amazon never actually never even, even takes possession it, of right, the book. Right. So that, that's why the idea of on Amazon is a little bit ambiguous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I have books in stock in my store that if you try to order them from Amazon, it will take a week or two for you to get the book. And in fact, it's even possible that Amazon will buy it from me. Or at least there was a time where Amazon was doing that. We don't sell really? them anymore. Mm -hmm. yep. So so that's the term on Amazon is a little bit a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, no, and that, and that makes sense, and I think it's certainly worth clarifying. But that, that also leads directly into my next question, which was, and I guess you've sort of answered this, is, although you also had sort of a caveat there, so maybe it's worth going a little bit further, is this idea of, is there any advantage to, to the indie bookstore? So, for example, Amazon serving as this intermediary that you might not otherwise have access to these, to these customers. Um, you know, understanding that again, because if I go to buy used books on Amazon, I usually do just go to the, the, the local stores, but if occasionally I'll go to Amazon for a used book, um, then you do see that it is stores across, uh, across the country that they really are just the interme intermediaries. They don't have them on hand, like you said. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that that's potentially good for the indie bookstores, but then I suppose it also depends on the terms. And then you just said that you're no longer doing that, if I understood correctly. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? I actually stopped doing that with Amazon quite quite a long time ago. Um, and it was several different, it was several iterations ago of that model that Amazon uses. Um, and in terms of selling stuff on Amazon, I don't, and we don't list our used books for sale on Amazon. They're, I'm not familiar with what their terms are currently. Their terms used to be um, not uh, very generous in terms of shipping costs. Uh, so, so essentially you had to mark up your, to be able to make a reasonable margin on the book, you actually had to mark up the price of the book to offset the fact that Amazon was only giving you a relatively small sum to cover the cost of shipping the book. Mm -hmm. So in that case, that, that puts me in a weird spot because if we were I to do that, someone would go, well, why is your book, two, why is this book $2 more expensive on Amazon than it is here in your store or on one of the other book listing sites that you do. And yeah. now it looks like I'm trying to gouge people who you know, have the gall to shop at Amazon. Right. That's not how I conduct business, yeah. and that's not what I, what I do. So you know, that's, that's not a real beneficial kind of thing. So basically, once you have enough of a following for the store, then you can just, you have enough people who are already checking out the site and things, and so you can get away without having to rely on on Amazon to bring you those customers. Yeah. Well, and I've never relied on Amazon. To well, bring me customers. relying but again is probably the wrong word too. But as for another Amazon way to, through to, which to create, people might to, to generate sales, those opportunities. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, what about? And this is the last Amazon question, but I think this is also an interesting one. Um, what about Amazon opening brick and mortar stores? What are your What are your <laughs> thoughts on that? There we go. See that? What the, clearly, it is a good question, given your initial reactions. 
bless them. <laughs> That's kind of my first reaction. Yeah. Um, the thing about Amazon opening brick and mortar stores, and this is, so I said earlier, I don't want to just be bashing Amazon. Right. But I, I actually have a very, very specific complaint with Amazon. Okay. Which is that based on a lot of things they have done in their in their business practices, both their dealings with authors, their dealings with publishers, um, and you know, I, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time going into detail about that. But it is my opinion and the opinion of quite a number of other people in the publishing and writing and bookselling fields. Amazon would really like to completely control and vertically integrate the entire market in that they would like to be the publisher, they would like to be the people paying the authors to write the books, they, they would then create the books, they would then sell the books to the customers who would only be buying books from them. Yep. I don't believe that that is a positive model for the intellectual life and vitality of our field and you know our country and our culture. I don't think that's a good thing. So it is that desire of Amazon's that makes me really oppose Amazon. I don't, I don't shop at Amazon. I don't recommend to people that they shop at Amazon. You know, if people wanna buy eBooks, I suggest that they go to Google or they go to Apple or they go to any of the other places who don't want to control the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They certainly mm -hmm. do wanna dominate a major, major chunk of industry. Right. But they don't really. Yeah, because those were interesting choices for they, right. But they don't really want to control the whole publishing business. Right. And right. Amazon, I believe, would like to entirely control the publishing industry from top to bottom, and I think that would be bad. Yeah, for me, it's been so. As an indie author, it was really difficult because, you know, when I first because I self-published my, my my first two books, mm -hmm. and I didn't shop at Amazon before. Right. I specifically went to indie bookstores. I specifically tried to, you know, support the indie bookstores. And and yet when I went to publish myself, it's sort of like saying I live here and don't want to use any of the utilities from, from, from getting the visibility because I am on a bunch of sites. I am on – I'm not on Google because they stopped taking – ebooks for a while i don't know what the yeah situation i don't is. i'm not totally familiar right 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 the current for a long time they, they were taking books and maybe they are again i don't know when i was publishing mine i couldn't actually get but i am on you know itunes barnes and noble lots of other smaller um, publishers and but everyone buys 99 percent of my books on amazon and it's not the way you know i appreciate amazon for giving the opportunity but i would prefer that it were spread out i would prefer that it were you know happening at these other places that have different models that might be better in my eyes um, but it was just really hard because if I want to do this on my own, trying to get people to buy from Apple or trying to get people to buy from some of these lesser known, you know, smart, um, what's uh, Smashwords, these mm -hmm. other places where my books are available, yep. you know, it's like uh, when I had this podcast before, you know, I had it on the radio, on the internet radio, and I would, each time I would post about an episode, I would have to do sort of a user guide for explaining to people how to listen. And six months later, you know, my friends, many of whom are working in tech, of course, I live in San Francisco, they would still say, you know, I went to iTunes and I couldn't find your, your podcast, even though I've told them over and over and over again that at the time it wasn't available on iTunes, which is one of the reasons I left the station because now it is because. Right. And so it was very similar with, with, with Amazon. You know, I would tell people it's on all these other sites. But so I don't know where I'm going with this other just to express some of my, I guess, Here's a question for you. Maybe this is where I'm going. What would you suggest to indie authors who, and maybe you don't have a suggestion. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Um, 
what would you suggest for someone like me who is trying to get out there? I'm not already known. I don't have any leverage insofar as saying you have to go, you know, I'm not Taylor Swift saying don't listen to, to my music on Apple until they change their terms. I have right. none of that sort of leverage. Do you, would you have any recommendations? And I mean, it's not an easy, an easy question, but just curious. Yes. The, what I usually suggest is don't, you know, don't, don't give up on Amazon. You can't, I mean, I want writers to be able to eat and make right. a living and right. continue to write books and trying to cut Amazon out of your, your sort of your, your model of how you're going to run things as an independent author. It's, it's suicide. You're cutting your own throat. So right. don't, don't do that. Definitely work with Amazon. But what I suggest to them is that you use some other publishing channel that is accessible to independent bookstores and that also it provides an alternative and recommend that one rather than recommending right. Amazon. Right. And so that's basically try sure. to try to try to direct help the traffic. build a larger ecosystem so that I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to have all the cards when it comes to selling books. And that and that's one of my big concerns too, right? All what you were talking about, the vertical and, and just having it all in one place. Yeah. 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 So I would say that, that, sounds that, like sound that, advice. that yeah. probably the best place that, that I would recommend is uh, Lightning uh, Lightning LSI, Lightning Source International. They do print on demand books. They also handle ebook distribution. Yep. They are owned by uh, Ingram uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the two major book distributors right. in the United States. Right. And anything that is listed with LSI is cataloged and is visible and accessible and orderable by any bookstore that has an Ingram account or has an account with the other big distributor, Baker and Taylor, All as right. opposed to stuff that's published by Amazon where I can't get it at a discount that will allow me to sell it. Mm -hmm. So I can't, you know, if a customer comes in and wants to order it, I can't order it for them. That ain't right. Nope. That ain't right. Okay, well, moving beyond Amazon, in spite of Amazon, in spite of the change in climate uh, for publishing for booksellers, in 2014, you managed to have your best year ever till then. I don't know. Maybe you've had better years since. I hope you have. We have. Okay, you've had better years. All right. So since 2014, you've had even better years. So that's in spite of all this conversation we're having about the changing landscape and stores closing and, and all of the challenges. Nonetheless, there's clearly some, some silver linings here, some lights at the end of the tunnel, whatever metaphor we want to use. Uh, what's more, I saw another statistic when I was doing the research for today, and this is just from Forbes from, last, from this June, so from you know, two months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it said, and you can tell me, whether you, again, whether this seems legit or not, uh, sales of science fiction and fantasy books has doubled since 2010. It's simply going unreported because of non-traditional publishing practices. So again, whether that's any, any, do you have any insight into that one? This is a quick tangent. That's not the real I'm question, not, but just I'm curious. I'm not familiar with the article. Yeah. It doesn't seem to me that that figure is what we're seeing, but mm -hmm. the non-traditional publishing practices are not the types of sales that we would see either. Okay, sure. Yep. So I don't disbelieve it. I mean, you look at what successful film and television is in the United States right now, and there's an awful lot of science fiction and fantasy on that list. Yeah. So I would I would believe it, it's but it's not something that we've that we've we've not seen it for the same reason. For the same I reason. That that a lot of non-traditional stuff. Yeah. Okay. So going further, that so so you're having more success more recently. You've had even better years, which is fantastic. But if we look just within a few miles of where we're having this conversation, where Borderlands is located, in the Mission slash Castro here in San Francisco, 
in the past few years, I don't know the exact window here, but in the past few years, uh, Modern Times, which was your neighbor, I th it was Modern Times, that's right. Yeah, Modern right? Times. Yeah. Uh, they closed or moved. I can't remember if they, did they moved. move? They moved. Okay, so they left, I think they left the city then. Did they, mm, are they still no, in the city? No, they moved to 24th Street, and then I believe they shut down. Okay, so they moved and closed. Yeah, they okay. moved and then they closed. They moved and then they closed. Uh, Adobe was going to close, but actually, similar to your situation, which we're about to talk about, uh, they found a way to keep going, and they moved from mm -hmm. 16th to 24th. Uh, around the same time that that's happening, Books, Inc. closed in the Castro, while Dog-Eared opened in the Castro in mm -hmm. the same spot that Different Light used to be located a few yep. years prior. So given all that, there are we've got at the same time we have indie bookstores closing we have indie bookstores opening so how would you characterize then the current the current climate because as not being a retailer myself not having the inside perspective there and trying to look at it from the outside it's really not clear other than the statistic that i just read a second ago that seems to suggest that there are more indie bookstores at least around here we've got some closing got some opening even in the same space uh, so any thoughts on just the general climate at least maybe here and then the broader climate I think that the I think the climate in San Francisco seems to be generally really pretty optimistic, um, but the two big pressures on bookstores are of course rents and wages, and those in San Francisco those things are both very high in San Francisco and are reaching peaks that they have never been at ever before. Yeah. So I am sort of cautiously optimistic, but it's still it's because. It's because a lot of the stores that are around are the ones who managed to survive everything else. And right. so they're kind of, they've, they've, they've worked out any, any number of different strategies to be able to continue to function. But um, I wouldn't relax. Yeah. Not in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. So what are some of the, again, we're going to talk about your program and what happened in February of 2015 mm -hmm. momentarily, but at a higher level and more general level perhaps, what are some of the keys of you know keys to success for for a store today how does a store survive in this climate what are the what are the elements that say some of these stores that are opening and even expanding have that some that are closing perhaps don't and i'm not thinking of specifics just just in, in general are there certain characteristics that you would call out i th it may seem very obvious but you have to be good at your job and okay. your, your job in book selling, your job is to have have the right books in, be able to recommend and identify books and help people find the books that they're looking for. And you gotta really treat your customers well. Mm -hmm. and you gotta be nice to them. And you gotta be, you know, you, 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 can't, you, you can't be the sort of old idea of the kind of the curmudgeonly bookseller sitting at the back of the shop and you know, it's like, ah, it's over there. Those stores are almost all gone because you can't survive and treat your customers that way. So basically, all the things that you need to do to do a good job in any business are the same things. That it applies to, to this. Yeah. What about um, you know something I saw in your mission statement? Some of the uh, things that I saw in articles, reading, preparing for today, talk about the importance of the bookstore as part of the community, as as actually serving as a community space. I mean, you have uh, in your no, I don't have it here easily accessible, but, um, you know, Borderlands is more than just a place to buy books. It's an important cultural destination. Uh, oh, here we go. This was from your mission. Quote, this store will be a social and professional center for readers, writers, publishers, reviewers, artists, and other individuals. 
the business will actively support both the professional and artistic community. So it seems as if that's sort of an added component there that I suspect is also relevant to just staying to staying relevant and to or you don't necessarily you're kind of no I, pondering. I, I, I agree I think yeah. that see I count that it's, you count that as I, what you were just saying as perhaps. kind of what I was saying right, I right, probably right, right, should have right. said more than just it's more than just treating our you know be treating your customers well it's treating everyone in your business well mm-hmm you know, uh, we, you know, when authors come and do events in the store, we try to, you know, we try to treat them nicely. When authors, you know, when local authors have a new book coming out and they want to do a release party, we're like, yeah, absolutely, sure. So you, you have to support the people that you're in business with. And it may be your customers, it may be your, the people that work with you, or it may be the, the people that you get your product from. But you, you know, you're all in it together, and you need to support each other. And if you don't, you don't get the support that that you need to survive. Back, right, right, yeah. and uh, that support takes lots of forms, obviously. Okay, so let's go to uh, September. No, it's not September. Uh, February first, two thousand fifteen. Oh a, yeah, an exciting time in your life in Borderlands <laughs> history. Uh, what happened on February first, two thousand fifteen? Mm, I told everyone I was going to close my store. And why did you tell everyone you were going to close your store? Because the um, in November of the preceding year, uh, the San Francisco voters had passed a uh, staged series of um, minimum wage increases that were going to drive up the cost of operating the business to the point that I was going to be losing $30,000 a year. Yep. And so it was basically making the business not financially viable. And I decided rather than wait until we could no longer do it, I wanted to close quickly at the top of our game while we all felt good about what we were doing rather than sort of trying to drag along. Forced out. Watching forced. The, yeah, and watching the numbers get worse and worse and having to let staff go and just that entire cycle. I just kind of wanted to end it clean. And so I said that I was closing, uh, going to be closing on March 1st. And did you get much of a reaction from the from the world at large? I got an enormous <laughs> reaction. Tell us about a little bit of that that reaction that you got. Um, well, we had folks of a uh, of of one political and economic camp um, saying that my my in principle support of minimum wages and in support of increasing San Francisco minimum wage. Uh, made me a fool, and I needed to read Ayn Rand so I could understand how to actually run a successful business. Did you? I did not. <laughs> no, I, uh-huh. I I like more entertaining fantasy than Ayn Rand. Okay, fair enough. Um, on the other end of the sort of spectrum, I had people who were incandescently angry at me for suggesting that there would be a negative consequence to increasing the minimum wage in San Francisco and felt that I was lying and that it was that my business was being taken out by Amazon or just sort of any other possible explanation. That it was being taken on by Amazon? No, that, 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 that the reason I was going out of business was because of Amazon. And you just didn't want to admit it. I didn't something. want to admit okay. it, okay. and I was blaming minimum wage. Yep. Um, and I, I, I can sort of understand, I can understand those folks a bit more than the sort of, you know, <clears throat> Ann Rand folks who were up, thought that I was an idiot for supporting minimum wage. You just hadn't wages. read the right book. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. Pinko lefty, that's me. So I can understand people being very upset at the idea that there could be something bad about a minimum wage increase, especially given what the sort of social climate 
was and is in San Francisco. So I understand them being upset, but it's equally ridiculous. So I got those two, you know, polar reactions. I had a lot of people calling me a liar and an idiot and things like that. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of a variety of news agencies got in touch with me and asked me to both uh, do interviews on TV and you know do 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 print interviews and things like that. Um, and so that was weird, all of it, very very weird. And um, but the biggest reaction that I got was from my customers, who just were, you know, walking in the store in tears, saying, "You can't really? close." Really, really in tears. Yes, that's awesome. Um, I mean, I'm sorry for them, but that's awesome. The passion it, and the the, the that, emotion that they felt, the love that they felt for the store. That that yeah. reaction, yeah, it really made me feel touched. Customers coming in saying, "Oh my God, I oh I realize I should point something out." Um, the, the thing that really left me stuck with the minimum wage situation is you can't just increase the prices on new books. Right. They have a price. Well, that's what I was just going to ask. Can you tell us a little have, bit about yeah, the, they have the, the money behind it? Right. right. There's an inherent assumption that books have a fixed price that's determined by the publisher. Um, I also run a cafe. The cafe, I have not had to do anything particular to deal with the minimum wage other than just increase our prices because I can adjust the prices of a cup of coffee to cover the wage increases just the way every other cafe in San Francisco, everyone that stayed in business is doing because when wages go from 1075 to $15 an hour in a period of four years, you have to increase your prices. That's not inconsequential. Right. Right. So, but you can't do that with books. books. You can't, you can't do that. I mean, we already have downward price pressures because of companies like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, you know, Barnes and Noble and Borders were the people who set that standard of, you know, discounting, discounting best-selling titles and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't increase the prices on our books. So we were sort of stuck. So I had folks coming in and saying that, you know, they voted for the minimum wage increase and they never even thought that it would mean that we were going to close and how they felt really bad. And I was like, don't feel bad. And May I jump in really quickly yeah. here, though, with the actual sort of sort of math? So this is from you were interviewed twice for The New Yorker uh, relative to this specific um, event or happening. And this is a quote from that article. Payroll was the biggest expense last year. It made up 42 percent of expenses, which most people probably wouldn't realize that that would represent that big a percentage of your operating costs, followed by rent, which amounted to 22 percent. And of course, most people in San Francisco would probably assume that your rent is the biggest challenge since so many people are forced out of their spaces because of the rent. But for you, 42% was um, and or is for uh, payroll. Remaining expenses were minimal, each amounting 6% or less. This is typical for an independent bookstore, and it means that wage increases have a disproportionate influence on overall expenses. So uh, because in some of your interviews, the, the people interviewing you didn't necessarily get that math. So I think that's yeah. really important so that people see, oh, you know, a few bucks an hour when it's actually 42% of your of your operating cost that we're talking about is actually much more significant than it might sound otherwise. Right. And the increase isn't just, and, and again, thinking of the increase as a couple bucks an hour isn't really accurate. Mm -hmm. We're talking of an increase of close to 50% right, right, in right. the thing that represents 42% of our expenses. So it adds up very quickly. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So Fox News calls, MSNBC calls, The New Yorker called twice at least. Uh, really bizarre time. But why do you think it got the national attention? Was it because of this? Was it really about the, the minimum wage issue? Was that really, or was there, was there more going on here? I think, I think it actually was more about the, I mean, it, it had, you know, the sort of, you know, 
bookstores in trouble has been a news point for a while to in varying That's degrees right. so you know and people feel good about you know bookstores aren't a terribly controversial sort of business i mean there there aren't really people who are like you know bookstores are lousy you don't want to have one in your neighborhood right. you know the kids not in my in backyard read you know that doesn't that <laughs> right. doesn't happen so it, right. it can be it there aren't there isn't a lot of complexity to it and so I think that mostly, though, it was the fact that it was so so directly tied to the increase in minimum wage. Okay, so you wake up one day, you've you've posted this sad message. You're sad that the store is coming to an end after all this time. All of a sudden, the news is calling from all over the country. Your your customers are coming in crying. It's this reaction you never could have possibly anticipated. So then, what do you do? Keep What's closing. No, no, that's exactly what I did. I no, but kept, you had a special meeting. I kept progressing okay, yeah. towards closing. Yeah, but yeah, part of my strategy because you know I planned this. The decision was made in December. Okay, you know I didn't just wake up right. on the first of February and be I like, can't yeah, do this anymore. Today yeah. I'm going to close the store. Yeah, you no, know, we we made this decision. The general manager and I made the decision in December, and we informed the staff in December. Oh, so the staff already knew. The staff too. knew yep. that it was on the way. Yeah, uh, we actually we told them in January we didn't want to screw up Christmas for people. Right. Um. So what what had been part of the plan all along was rather than having all of my staff have to deal with people coming in and talking to them about how they felt about closing and also you know sharing all those their ideas with the folks who work for me who all were miserable and you know were kind of like I understand you're upset that we're closing <laughs> I'm losing my job right and the place that I work. Right. So rather than all of that landing on, on my staff, what we planned was to have a big meeting and basically let everyone have a chance to sort of air it all out and, you know, come up with all of their suggestions and say how they felt about all the stuff and put me up at the front of the room and have me deal with all of that so the staff didn't have to. And so <clears throat> that meeting and, and my you know, I was certainly happy to hear people's ideas, but my plan at that meeting was a lot more ruthless. It's like, no, I'm going to let you all talk to me, and I'll take the weight so my staff doesn't have to. Yeah. And I'm going to let you all get it out of your system, and then we're going to go back to closing the store. Yeah, you weren't looking for a solution or an nope. alternative. You were no. letting – it was basically a big therapy session, let everyone get it off their chest, exactly. but then, sorry. I didn't believe – there. I'd been trying to figure out a way out of it since the April of the preceding year when I realized that – the minimum wage legislation was liable, liable to pass. When I sat down, I did the did math, the math. Yep. and felt like I had just been punched in the stomach. Mm -hmm. um, there was at least one other bookseller who hadn't realized how bad the numbers were until I announced that I was closing, and then they sat down and they looked at their numbers and realized. Oh, a different bookstore, you mean? Yeah, yeah, entirely different, different, different bookstore. Different yep. bookstore. Yeah, <clears throat> and realized, oh my God, we're in serious trouble. What are we going to do? Right. So um, I'd been th I'd thought all of this through, and I figured eh, I I'm pretty considered smart guy. all the options. I know my business pretty well, and there isn't there isn't a fix here. Um, and so we had the meeting, and a number of people had lots of ideas, and all all, all of the ideas that I, I sort of expected were brought up. And there were some ideas that like you know it's like yeah it's kind of good, but it's not enough, or it's you know not going to be fast enough, and. Um, one of the things that was an obstacle is I was very opposed to the idea of sort of taking handouts. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't uh, judge other people for doing it, but if something is a business that I own, that I operate for profit, 
asking people to basically give me money so I can keep doing that doesn't really feel right. I get it. To me. Yep. I'm a little yep. stiff-necked about that kind of thing. Yeah. So the one thing that did come up during the meeting is that someone, someone asked, um, actually an economist, um, asked, well, what if I could, like, you know, buy a membership card so that I could pay more for books? Interesting. You know, what if I paid for the privilege of paying more for books? And I was sort of like, <laughs> who in, you know, are you nuts? And are there a lot more of you and, out there? And he said, look, I don't want you to go out of business. I understand that you can't just raise your prices, but I would pay more. And I think maybe there's other people who would pay more. And so I said, okay, well, how, how many of you here would, would do what this guy's suggesting? Right. Like half the people raised their hands. And I went, okay, I think you're all nuts, but I'm okay with this. So we finished the meeting. There was no conclusion. You know, it was thank you all for coming. We appreciate talking about it. But the wheels are spinning. But, you know, we're done. Yeah. And um, so then we went back to continuing to close the store. And it was about two days later that I and um, Jude Feldman, the general manager, uh, a couple other staff people, one of whom I think was Jeremy, we were, we were working the shelves because we were selling so many books, the shelves were emptying out. And we had to bring things and rearrange mm, things right. and stuff like that. And we got kind of talking about the meeting. And I don't really know who came up with the idea. I don't think it was like one person who came up with the idea of, you know, hey, let's do this. But during the course of that conversation, us chatting, we came up with the idea of what if we offered some kind of membership, sponsorship, something um, for a pretty nominal sum. And, you know, if we got enough people, and let's say it was a hundred bucks, we're going to be 30 grand in a hole. Um, let's see if 300 people will sign up and do it. And if they will, we'll stay open for a year. But they'll have to do it every every year because that's yep. the other thing is it has to be a sustainable. I mean, I've seen stores who needed money do like a one-time fundraiser and it can work very well, but people don't have the stamina to keep doing that. Yep. And so then we went out and had quite a few beers at the 500 Club on Guerrero and 17 <laughs> and batted the idea around some more and came up with the idea. And one of my things was we have to do something to make it and fair. Otherwise it's just of yeah, sorts. otherwise it's just a handout. And it it's not like we're really going to sell something cuz that's not really what it's about either, but I have to I have to feel like people get value for what they've done beyond just the store stays open. Because right. otherwise it feels like a handout. I don't want to do that. Yeah. So we came up with a bunch of ideas about what sort of benefits we could we could give people and we announced this sponsorship program. And I basically announced it. So, okay, well, if, if, you know, if 300 people, we're going to continue closing, but if 300 people are willing to do this before March 1st, which was our deadline. And how um, long was that? We'll what, stay open. Where, what, where were we at that point? Like two weeks out. Two I weeks think. out. Two, okay. maybe three weeks. Yeah. Somewhere around there. But the clock was ticking. Uh, the clock was, clock was ticking. And I said, you know, I don't know if this is going to work, but eh, let's give it a try. And um, we had... The phone rang off the hook for the rest of the day. People were driving down and banging on the doors after we were closed. We had 300 sponsors in like 40 hours. 
and uh -huh. we ended up having in total over 900 sponsors. Really? Just the first year? First year. In days? In, in yes. And how did you get the word out? Was the word you just posted on your website? How we did just you just post it on our website. And that's all it took? That was it. Okay. Um, so were you sort of shocked? I was absolutely <laughs> flabbergasted. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, I didn't even think it would necessarily work. Yeah. I thought it might work. Yeah. I was not expecting the magnitude of the reaction. Yeah. And it really changed. It really changed my attitude to my business. It changed my attitude and ideas about what we had been doing all these years. And it really, it really caused a complete left turn in terms of. Yeah. So what tell me. Do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. About how it changed what you realized you'd been doing all these years. Um. I thought that I had been, you know, doing doing a pretty good job. Yeah. You know, taking care of people and you know, being honest and being fair and you know all the kind of stuff that you're supposed to do. Um. I didn't think that I had been doing anything that was going to create this kind of loyalty and this sort of passion that people felt. And so I sort of stopped and went, fuck, what did I do? <laughs> um, and we started But that must have felt really like, good. Oh, it was great. Yeah. It was, it was, it was yeah. great. It was also really traumatic. Why was it traumatic? Well, anytime you have to really... Everyone's familiar of having the experience of discovering that you or your life isn't what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. But normally it's in a negative way. Right. When it's a positive way, it's just as challenging. Interesting. Because you still are having your view of yourself and your world. It you know upended still getting or whatever. Baked, right. 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 It's it just it's in a positive way, but it's still it's still pretty pretty challenging. Yeah. Um, Do you feel almost more responsibility now oh, yeah. as a result of that? Oh, because yeah. now you realize you've created this thing that means even more than you realized. This used to just be my thing. It was my business. I owned it. I ran it. I started it. And I could kind of do with it whatever I wanted. And so I you didn't thought. feel that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I didn't. I, and under those terms, I mean, I had not, you know, I, I have a bunch of obligations, you know, my employees, my customers, my vendors, you know, I'm not just going to close up shop one day and, you know, run away with the payroll and not pay the bills. But within a pretty short list of obligations, um, I got to do anything I wanted. Yeah. I don't entirely feel that way. Yeah. Because it's not just my business. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So that was 2015. Mm -hmm. We're now in 2018. Uh, do, the, do the sponsorships, is that happened at the beginning, like January of each year? Yes. Safe starts, to assume. So now you've done January, it three times. So we've done it... Uh, 15, 16, 17. Oh, no, four times. Four times. I'm not very good at the yeah, math. We've done it four That's times. why I write and don't do that. Yeah. yeah. So four times. So it continues to work. Mm -hmm. Any, is it, are you sort of, I mean, if you got 900 the first time, but then there's also maybe more of a desperation because you're telling people you're closing. There was, there was exactly the sort of sharp drop off. Right. The second year that I expected, but it still only dropped off to 500s. So it still was plenty. And you only need 300. You need 300. Yep. And then the each the the third and fourth years the numbers have been higher each year. So okay. actually the numbers are going up. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Congratulations. Fascinating. Um, what is also going up is a new building. Yes. So how do we go from? So this is really exciting, but I'm really curious at the same time. How do we go from a few years ago we're going to close, getting the sponsors to now we've got a new building. So how is the new, where did that come from? And how, how is that happening? That sounds major, obviously. 
Well, as, as I said, the sponsorship program caused me to sort of reframe how I, I looked at what I did and right. the business and so forth. Right. So if people were going to go to these lengths to allow Borderlands to continue to operate, I felt that it was it became my responsibility to keep trying to figure out ways for Borderlands to keep operating sure. um, beyond the point that I had, I had planned. Yep. My plan had been, because it was obvious what was happening with rents and everything else in San Francisco. Um, and the mission in particular. And mission district in particular. But just in general. Yeah, in yeah, general, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, rents are very high. And um, so my sort of operating plan was that we would continue to operate the bookstore in its current location until our current lease expired. So this is prior to the sponsorship, prior to figuring out, oh, we're going to have to close. My sort of arc and plan was, right, keep keep at the current location until the, the lease that we had at the time ran out. And so that lease is set to expire in uh, 2021. And then the lease for the cafe that we operate next door has about five years uh, left beyond that point. So that okay. lease so expires, two I think, separate leases. in 2026. Yeah, yeah, so two separate leases. Okay. So my plan was can t keep operating in the current bookstore until that lease runs out, try to find a new space, but most likely not be able to find one or rent that we could manage, shrink the cafe part of the cafe and the bookstore part of the bookstore, put mm. the bookstore in the cafe mm -hmm. space mm -hmm. okay. for the remaining five years on that lease, and then shut down. Yeah. Uh, because probably won't be able to won't be, be viable to after that point. And, it, you know, unless I wanted to move out of the Bay Area. I mean, there's lots of other places sure. in the U.S. where I could run the bookstore, sure. but in San Francisco, no. So that was the plan. After the sponsorship and everything, that really wasn't okay to my mind. I felt like I needed to come up with a way around that, and I also felt that I might have the support to be able to do that. Yeah. So I started looking for a building for us to buy and looked for about a year and a half and made offers on several buildings. Uh, talked with a number of uh, the, our sponsors, basically saying, so if I find myself in a position where there's a building that looks like it works and contingent on, you know, you thinking that it makes sense and everything else, would you, would you be open to lending money to assist with the purchase of a building? And the responses that I got were pretty, pretty positive. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of them, but there were a few. Enough and potential. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and the sort of talking point that I used was saying, you know, would you be able to offer a loan of fifty dollars to $100,000 to help with a building purchase? So we had, you know, a pool of people who would be kind of like, yeah, yeah, maybe do that. And so I'm looking for buildings, looking for buildings. And uh, through a friend of mine, I discovered that a, um, a used record shop uh, in the, on Upper Haight Street uh, called uh, Recycled Records mm -hmm. was, yep. was closing down. Uh, the owner decided to retire, and he was donating uh, an awful lot of his records to the Internet Archive. And that was where I heard about it because I have associations with, with IA. And that he also was going to be selling the building. Mm -hmm. So I went there, and I was doing some – I was helping them out with packing boxes of records and getting that all that sorted. And I had a chance to kind of see the building, and I thought about it. I discussed it with, the, with uh, Jude, the general manager. I was like, could we fit the – bookstore work here and um, she felt that it would and is so it a bigger space or a smaller space or comparable is, or it, 
our current location is 2,000 square feet, of which 1,600 square feet is actual, like, you know, sales floor. Well, and then there's an office and a storeroom. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, the new place is 1,400 square feet, but we can put the office and storeroom space in the basement. Mm-hmm. And so we'll actually only be losing about 200 square feet. Okay, of space. all right. So, pretty so it'll be very, very comparable, yeah. Um, so I talked with Jude and was like, can we, could we do this? And she was like, yeah, I think so. I was like, should we do this? She was like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, uh, we made an offer on the building, which was accepted. And, um, then I borrowed the entire purchase price of the building from our customers. Wow. Um, a total of 50 lenders. Oh my gosh. Lending amounts from as low as $10,000 to as much as $150,000. Wow. 50 lenders. Yes. That's incredible. I mean, this is a whole other angle here is your organizational abilities. I mean, to keep track of all that and, and negotiate that with 50 different <clears throat> people and... In 11 days. In 11 days? That was <laughs> that was all oh the time God. that I had to raise the... To be sure that I was going to be able to raise the Yeah, money. yeah. So we raised $2.3 million in 11 days. Wow. Yeah. Do you do do you do funding uh, fundraising for podcasts? I, fundraising I, I, for uh, I had never upcoming done, books. I had never yeah. done any f- kind of fundraising ever in my life. That's insane. Yeah. I thought it was. Yeah. Again, like congratulations, the like the sponsorship awesome. program. I was like, mm, I'm not sure this is going to work, but I'll take a shot. Yeah. But again, it speaks to. I mean, this store obviously means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. That's 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 incredible. Okay, we are running out of time. I want to uh, just, let's see, um, quick question though, I guess. So do you have a timeline for people who are, because I know these construction projects always take <laughs> longer than expected. You had mentioned on one of the blog posts that I read before today's show that Hoping August at August one point was a target. Yeah, that's Any? so not happening. Yeah. Um, I've, done an, I've done enough projects like this that I actually think that most of the time deadlines and, and you know projected opening dates are mostly kind of BS. Yeah. And so, and at this point it's become very clear that the job is not necessarily a lot harder, but it is larger. And there are details that I did not anticipate when we bought the building. Again, nothing disastrous, more a matter of looking at things and going, okay, we're here, the wall's open, that's not really right. This is a really good time to fix it. And if we don't fix it now, going to be a lot messier it's later. It's going to be a lot messier and a lot more trouble. So why don't we get that fixed now? Right. And that's produced a fair amount of creep in terms of the magnitude of the job. Yeah. So at this point, I am candidly enthusiastically telling, telling people that I have no idea whatsoever <laughs> when we're going to. But you know it's happening. I know it's happening. And it's happening in the future. Yeah, it is happening Hopefully in the future. Hopefully a future that's within sight. Hopefully, hopefully but, so. Okay, but we don't know. One last question that I just realized I skipped and I'm curious about, even though yeah. we are out of time a few minutes ago. Um, do you, because you had always wanted, always, quote unquote, before when you were in Hayes Valley, or when you decided to open the bookstore, you'd wanted to be in the mission. Yeah. You started in Hayes Valley, you were able to move to the mission, mm-hmm. sort of realize that goal or that desire. Now you've been there 20 years. Do you have any sort of feelings about leaving that neighborhood, going to the hate? Or is it just, okay, well, no, I've been there, done that. I'm just moving on to the next phase. Any, is there any emotional attachment? Any, any thoughts, feelings on that? Um, uh, as, as a matter of fact, we've been open for 20 years. We've actually been in mission for 17 okay. years because we yeah, got three right. years, three years in the right, location. In Valley, right. um, candidly, I'm, I'm actually very glad to be leaving. Okay. Um, 
the mission has changed really dramatically in the time that we've been there and, and very dramatically in the last four or five years. I, uh, San Francisco has always been a boom town and it's always been the new people who come to San Francisco who've set the character of, you know, some of the great characters of San Francisco were set by people coming here. I don't have a problem with that. But the mission doesn't feel like a neighborhood so much anymore. A lot of the things that drew me to it and that made it feel like home to me aren't there anymore. And so I'm actually, I'm, I'm totally fine with going. Yeah. Yep. Um, whereas Hate Street, I mean, the same breakfast place that I have been going to on Hate Street, you know, the Pork Store Cafe, yep. still there, still serving incredibly good Blue Ray pancakes. And Although I've been there going is there one of those on 16th. In the mission. Yes, there is. Um, but, that's the sa- but that's the it's same different. one. That's yeah. the same one yeah, that I've yeah. no, been it. going to since. And I live in the mission, so I'm I'm very aware, as you know, of the changes to which you're yeah. referring. So yeah, yeah. So I'm actually I'm very excited. I'm very excited to move move to Hate Street. It it feels a lot more like a neighborhood, and it feels uh, it's also a lot more human scale. I hadn't realized until I started spending time there. I hadn't realized just how wide. Valencia Street and Mission Streets are and how sort of tall the buildings and it just it feels sort of exposed mm-hmm. and kind I of know naked. what you're talking about yeah especially Mission but yeah especially Mission, Valencia but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Valencia compared Valencia to hate too. compared to yeah, hate compared certainly. to like hate street right and so I really like that feeling of just being sort of more compact and like littler yeah yeah, that's that's how I feel when I go to New York City, and that's how I always describe it to my friends who just love New York City, and I certainly appreciate New York City. I'm happy to go there, and I enjoy it when I'm there. But after a week, if that, the scale, it just feels so dehumanizing to me not being used to it. Yeah. Whereas I can go to Paris, or obviously here at home, but mm-hmm. if, if we're talking about other cities, I go to Paris, which is just super dense. It's still this crazy urban environment, but everything's just lower and just feels more, yeah, Humane to yeah. me is 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 anyway. Even though there's, it's still this 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 big city, this really ur- urban environment. Uh, there are many more things that I would like to ask you, but we covered most of the main stuff. Uh, this has been really fascinating, really interesting. So thank you for making time, particularly given the the projects, <laughs> the two businesses you're running, plus the building that you're uh, renovating. I really appreciate uh, you making the time to to come and talk. It was and an absolute pleasure. It was great to chat. And I look forward also to seeing the progress. And, and so when you do open, one last question. Uh, are we going to have a big celebration? Safe to assume? Oh, <laughs> multiple. Multiple big multiple celebrations. celebrations. All yeah. right. So it will be, it will be, we'll be shouting it from the rooftops when, All we, right. when we And move. you actually have a rooftop from which to, sh- the third floor. We do, in fact, yeah. have a rooftop from which to from shout From which to it. shout it. All right. Well, we all look forward to that. Alan, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. All right, folks, that is all for today. No show next week, like I said, but uh, the week after, I'll have Nahid Fatahi in the studio. As I said at the beginning, she's a humanitarian, a storyteller, a poet, a yogi, and soon-to-be psychologist. She is also an Afghani refugee, or she was many years ago, and we'll talk about some of her incredible, inspiring, empowering uh, experiences. So I'm really looking forward to that. Other upcoming guests, since I'm not going to be here next week, just to uh, make sure that you come back to uh, when I am back. Uh, First of all, again, Kimberly Lovato and Jill Robinson will talk about 100 things to do in San Francisco before you die. Uh, Zoe Elton will be on from the Mill Valley Film Festival, talk about the film festival and what's going on in film in general right now. Jane Ganahl will be here to talk about this year's Litquake Festival. 
and Amanda Jones, co-founder of Kikoko Cannabis Infused Teas, will be here to talk about those and hopefully cannabis in general and lots of related issues. Thanks again to today's guest, Alan Beats, founder and owner of Borderland Books. And Borderlands is at borderlands-books.com. And last but certainly not least, thank you for watching and listening. If you liked the show, please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. And actually, particularly on YouTube, if I can, can I get a little specific here, because you know I've had a YouTube channel forever, but I hadn't really given much attention to it because there's only so much promoting on the social media that I can do. So I've been focused on you know Facebook and Instagram. But now that I got the video of the shows, um, I really need some more likes and followers or whatever it is on YouTube. I guess it's subscriptions, actually. It subscribes on YouTube. So uh, any and all of you who could take a second and just subscribe to Matthew Felix on YouTube, which you can find on MatthewFelix.com, I would really appreciate it. It's the whole thing where I need to have so many followers in order for YouTube to start you know, getting my videos out there and activating that algorithm because everything, of course, today is an algorithm. Uh, but anyway, so I would really appreciate that on YouTube, but again, on any of the platforms, I appreciate your support. Uh, for more about me, like I said, my website is MatthewFelix.com and links to my social media, books, other podcasts, and all the rest can be found there. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, I would love to hear from you at FelixOnAir at MatthewFelix.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great couple of weeks. <laughs>